Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Just a few months ago, before the coronavirus became a pandemic, the world was already confronting a series of humanitarian emergencies. Some of these stemmed from man-made crises like wars in Yemen and Syria, some from natural disasters like cyclones and earthquakes and droughts. Much of the responsibility for providing emergency relief to people caught up in these kinds of crises falls to international non-governmental organizations, or INGOs, that specialize in humanitarian relief and disaster response. And even before COVID-19 hit, many of these organizations were stretched to the limit responding to these ongoing crises. Now, many of these organizations are taking on the additional responsibility of responding to the impact of the coronavirus in places already beset by crisis. So what I wanted to do with this episode is understand how a large INGO is repairing its response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what that response will look like. To that end, I was very glad to speak with Susanna Friedman, who is the Humanitarian Policy Director for CARE, which is one of the larger global humanitarian organizations. It has a staff of over 6,000 and works in over 100 countries. We kick off discussing the importance of a recent $2 billion funding appeal launched by the United Nations to coordinate a global response to COVID-19. We then discuss how this pandemic is impacting the day-to-day work of CARE and what CARE is doing to prepare for COVID-19 in the places where it works. This includes an extended conversation about the particular impact of COVID-19 on the health and safety of women and girls who are already in vulnerable situations. I think you'll find this conversation very helpful. You know, millions of people around the world every day are served by the humanitarian system, which includes both UN agencies and government agencies, but also, you know, very significantly uh, nonprofit and private organizations like CARE. And I think this conversation gives you a good insight about what these private organizations, these INGOs are thinking about and, and doing right now. Also, uh, just one note before we start, I know we are now entering, at least where I am, week three of the lockdown. I'm now under a uh, shelter-in-place order, as I suspect many of you who are listening are as well. Uh, Please just feel free to reach out to me if you have anything on your mind. If you want to chat, you can just email me. Use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I read all those emails. I'll respond to all those emails anything on your mind, let me know. If you have suggestions of people you want me to interview or you know, just questions or, or thoughts, feel free to reach out. This is an important uh, time to you know, stay socially distant, but we can use that, I think, to uh, connect with each other in other important ways. And if I can facilitate that for you, I'm, I'm happy to. 
And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Susanna Friedman of CARE. So when we are confronting crises of a significant scale where the humanitarian community needs to bring the full resources that it can to bear, um, working collectively through a shared understanding of the kinds of issues that we need to uh, collectively address um, is the sort of thing that we like to do through a UN appeal process, which brings everyone together and onto the same page and allows us to present to the broader community of um, people working in foreign policy and donors and others um, a, a shared understanding of what the needs really are. And so, you know, we, we all contribute into that process in a way to try and make it representative of the ways in which we collectively understand needs. We do recognize that in this case, the needs are just tremendous um, and likely to overwhelm the system um, and that there is going to be a significant response required. Um, We are also cognizant of the fact that we can't fight this particular pandemic at the expense of other humanitarian emergencies where we are already facing uh, a situation of underfunding, right, or funding shortages. Mm -hmm. And so we want absolutely for the entirety of the international community to step up and fight this pandemic in the right kinds of ways and to bring the resources to bear that will be required um, in the immediate and longer term, both to respond to the immediate needs and also to address what will inevitably be a significant and long-term need to recover and rebuild from this. Um, But we need also to remember that this pandemic does not erase the fact that there are other large-scale humanitarian crises taking place at the same time. Those have not ended just because we are now facing a pandemic. So we need to be thoughtful about the ways in which we continue to think about those. Um, Because the failure to meet basic needs in those kinds of crises, um, where groups are already so vulnerable, is going to jeopardize all of our efforts to contain the spread of the virus. So so that actually leads very nicely into my next question, um, which is mostly around what sort of care was doing, say, before this this uh, pandemic happened. Could you provide a snapshot of CARE's activities around the world that might give you know listeners a sort of baseline understanding of just you know what you were doing before this additional crisis hit? Sure. So CARE works in 100 countries globally, um, and in the context specifically of humanitarian emergencies, um, we focus on a few core technical sectors, um, those uh, being water, sanitation and hygiene, sexual and reproductive health, shelter, and food and nutrition security. And so the- Can, you, can I just stop you there just for people yeah. who are not um, as aware of how like the humanitarian cluster system works? Could you just uh, describe like, what does that mean in practice when you say you are uh, participate in say water and sanitation? Is it a matter of like 
you know, building wells and latrines in, in refugee camps? Can you just sort of you know, illustrate that a little bit, please? Sure. You know, and that can look different and does look different all over the world. Um, and so that can entail activities ranging from basic hygiene promotion and endeavors around hand washing um, and ensuring appropriate sanit- sanitation facilities in um, refugee camps or other areas where vulnerable people are living to the provision of water through um, the construction of wells or water trucking, you know, whatever means are necessary to get um, water to people who need it. Um, so any range of activities across that sort of that spectrum of work that we would consider um, required in order to ensure that people have adequate potable water supplies to manage their daily um, cooking, drinking, and hygiene requirements. So we are operating at a significant scale in crises all around the world, Um, in Syria, in Bangladesh, in Nigeria, in Yemen, right, in all of the places where, um, where there is a significant need for humanitarian assistance and where people are already so vulnerable as a result of the the crises or just sort of general um, development deficits that they face. And I think from the perspective of care, you know, we, we are delivering this assistance all around the world every day. And we have a particular concern about the ways in which women and girls are caught up in crises. And so we try to be um, very clear about both what the impact of any given crisis is on women and girls, and also thoughtful about the ways in which a response needs to be tailored to ensure that they are not left out and that their needs are both seen um, and met in any given crisis. So that's sort of the, the sort of baseline. That that's what you know, CARES, bread and butter, what CARES, one of the larger global humanitarian organizations has been doing for many years and, and doing successfully. Um, but then we have this this pandemic layered on top of those crises that you were just describing. Was there a moment uh, for you when you realized that this COVID-19 pandemic outbreak was going to seriously impact the work of CARE? Oh, that's a really good question. And I mean, I think you know, for so many of us, um, we are not only responding to this crisis, but we are caught up in it, right? And so um, because of the global nature, I think as this pandemic has kind of rolled just like a freight train across the world, it has become increasingly clear on a day-to-day basis just how um, significantly this is impacting on the communities that we serve and on our staff themselves um, right across the world, from headquarters to country offices, to field offices, to our care members who are implementing work um, right around the world. So in any, in any given uh, emergency, we have entire teams of people who uh, ramp up to start delivering assistance very quickly. Some of those people are already on the ground. Some of them are part of global response teams, and we can parachute them in to provide specific types of technical assistance. But obviously, given the ways in which this pandemic is impacting our ability to travel, um, our ability even to get to offices, 
uh, right around the world means that we are having to find very different ways um, of providing support uh, and working to very quickly um, and uh, as best as possible support communities who are already so vulnerable um, and those caught up in in ongoing emergencies to very quickly become as resilient as possible to this pandemic, recognizing that, um, you know, outbreaks will continue to increase across the countries where we are implementing work. So, so like, what have some of your, um, say, strategies looked like then? I mean, if, if, as you said, you're not able to parachute a team in, right, because of, you know, the fact that their flights aren't, aren't, aren't flying at the moment. What have some of your workarounds been so far? So we have actually sort of quote unquote deployed all of our um, technical humanitarian support staff around the world, and they are working from their home locations to provide technical support on a remote basis. Um, we have also surged out a significant level of resources to um, financial resource to try to basically work through our existing programming to um, ensure that vulnerable communities have access to adequate water, adequate hygiene supplies, um, you know, adequate cash, and so on and so forth, in order to um, meet the crisis that is looming in front of them. Uh, and what about things like your supply chain? Like, presumably, you know, the, you know, water or, or sanitation products, you know, are produced somewhere, but then deployed elsewhere. Have those been interrupted yet? To the degree that we are able to, we really source locally in any event. <clears throat> and so um, we have continued to do that um, as much as possible. But obviously, we, just like everyone else right across the world, are dealing with the sort of day-to-day um, changes and challenges that this particular pandemic is um, is now placing in front of us, right? So where we are able to freely move and deliver assistance today, we don't know that we are going to be able to do that tomorrow. And so I think our sense of things is really that time is of the essence right now in terms of trying to deliver accurate information um, you know, promote strong hygiene and sanitation practices in order to mitigate the spread, um, the further spread of of the virus. And we are doing that through existing uh, water and sanitation and hygiene programming. We are doing that through existing education programming. Um, we are doing it wherever we have an ability to quickly surge through what we are already doing. How do you expect that sort of just by the nature of the fact that this is, you know, an easily transmissible disease that could have really, you know, devastating effects on people who are already somehow compromised, their health is already compromised, or they're in some, you know, vulnerable, vulnerable position already. Um, how do you expect or how are you preparing, I should say, for the introduction to of COVID to many of the humanitarian crises that you're working on? And sort of what, like, how are you thinking through how to um, sort of respond to COVID should it, say, take hold in the place where you are working? So, I mean, in the immediate term, we're scaling up activities to ensure that clear guidance on risk prevention and awareness of symptoms is available in the communities where we work. And so that includes things like hand washing, 
um, providing soap, hand washing stations, and 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 other types of activities that would support um, mitigating the spread. That's one of our immediate concerns. Uh, but obviously, we are also working towards um, you know what is feasible within the context of an increasing level of outbreak in in the places where we work, um, and particularly looking at um, what the specific risks for women and girls are in that particular um, event, right? As we see the increase, increased spread of the virus, what does that mean in particular for women and girls who are so often disproportionately affected um, during crisis? And so um, we are looking, for example, at um, where we implement sexual and reproductive health services. How do we ensure that those critical services related to family planning and sexual health are able to continue particularly as um, primary health care systems and health resources are diverted to um, the COVID-19 response, right? And so we have learned from past crises, for example, in Ebola and Zika, that there are particular ways in which, uh, as a system is stretched to respond to a specific epidemic outbreak, other parts of the system that are equally as important in terms of ongoing services start to falter. And so we are looking at how to bolster those ongoing systems to make sure that women have access to life-saving sexual and reproductive health services. Um, One of the areas where we are particularly concerned is that uh, during crises, there tends to be a spike in gender-based violence and intimate partner violence, right? So at the exact same time that access to those critical protection services is likely to decrease because of limitations and restrictions on movement, um, the need for those services will be increasing. And so how do we look at trying to be creative about how to ensure that those really critical life-saving protection services are in place when women are going to need them so so what's like an example of being creative in, in that situation when you have like a health system that's strained? So, you know, as you said, um, services or service providers who might be providing sexual reproductive health are diverted to, you know, say COVID response. Like what are some of your sort of creative responses that, that, that you are trying to sort of think through right now? So I think we're coming at this from a few angles. We are, um, as I mentioned, on the one hand, trying in the immediate term to surge resources out very quickly in order to create additional levels of resilience in vulnerable households um, so that in the same ways that all of us around the world are, are increasingly needing to either shelter in place or really restrict our movement, that that vulnerable households who increasingly are facing those situations are able to do so with supplies to hand. Um, We are also looking very, very closely um, and working quickly right now on um, modalities for how we can um, provide remote assistance. I think um, CARE and I'm sure many other agencies are um, looking to the provision of cash as a means of delivering assistance and increasing resilience is a critical piece of this puzzle. Um, you know, in in a way to position vulnerable households to meet their immediate needs now and in an ongoing way as best possible. 
Um, I can give you an example. So for example, in, um, in West Bank, Gaza, our current work is um, delivering essential supplies and disposables to healthcare facilities. And we're also providing household kits to families, including those in quarantine. But we're particularly prioritizing female-headed households, poor households, um, or those with other particularly vulnerable um, family members, like disabled family members, who are so um, specifically at risk during this crisis, and arranging capacity-building sessions for medical teams um, who are directly involved in pandemic response to try and boost their capacity to um, meet the needs of communities as they increase during this time. Just the only additional thing I might add is to say that, um, you know, as we conceive uh, of how this response is going to be delivered uh, in the immediate term and in the long term, um, we are ensuring that uh, as a community, we are specifically paying attention to the needs of women and girls who are so likely to suffer increased risks of violence and vulnerability during this time, but also that we are taking particular care to listen to the voices of affected women and girls um, who are really best positioned to articulate their own needs uh, at a time when we when we most critically need to be listening to those. Can I ask, sort of looking forward and looking at the the coming weeks and, and months, what worries you the most about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on CARE's ability to do its work? Oh, well, <laughs> you know, there are a number of things that have been keeping me up at night about this. Um, I worry that um, our staff who are working so courageously to um, respond to this crisis now are themselves impacted and that that is going to take a heavy toll on everyone um, and, you know, will increasingly make it challenging for us to continue to, um, to, 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 to deliver assistance in the way we want to, especially when there are movement restrictions um, put into place in countries around the world. Um, I worry that uh, this is a long-term crisis and we are only just at the very, very beginning. Um, you know, I think we should all be making the assumption that uh, this is something we will be dealing with for a very long time to come. And we need to be prepared to manage that. Um, we need to have the resources uh, in place to continue responding, both through the sort of acute emergency phase, but also then as we move into uh, recovery, which will inevitably just take a very, very long time. Um, and I don't think we have a sense of how long that takes yet. Um, but I think it is clear to all of us, um, no matter where we sit in the world, that that this will not be a quick fix. Um, I worry that in those places where significant development gains have been made, um, you know, the economic impact of this crisis is likely to mean that um, we are confronting an entirely new uh, range of emergency and sort of humanitarian style crises um, in a wider range of places that we need to respond to at the same time that we are responding to the pandemic. 
So like um, countries that you wouldn't even think would require humanitarian intervention because of the economic uh, downturn globally, it's impacting, you know, certain countries that, that, you know, right now you wouldn't imagine would be so vulnerable. Right, exactly. I mean, even if you think about um, some of the most developed places in the world, right, people are losing jobs. This is impacting on econ- economic systems, um, impacting on markets. And for families that are already so vulnerable, that is going to have a devastating impact, right? If you are um, if you are a woman who is reliant on daily labor and movement restrictions mean that you are no longer able to pull in that daily wage, um, your livelihood has been immediately wiped out, right? When you don't have that, um, that cushion to fall back on, um, you become then really put into an incredibly difficult situation. And so I think we need to be really thinking about, you know, both what the immediate needs are, how we work to, um, slow the spread of the virus, how we work to um, mitigate the kind of impact that it's going to have in communities that are already so vulnerable. I mean, if you think about uh, Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, right, where people are so densely packed together, um, it, it is it is very daunting to think about how to slow the spread. So I think we need yeah, to think I about saw those immediate on, on that, questions. Yeah, on, yeah. On- on Cox's Bazaar specifically, uh, I saw yesterday someone from Johns Hopkins emailed me their mo- latest modeling on how they expect transmission to occur in in a part of Cox's Bazaar where there are 600,000 Rohingya refugees. And in their low transmission scenario, so like their better case scenario, over 420,000 people would be infected in 12 months. It was, That's right. it was crazy. Yeah. Um, the, the good news, at least for Cox's Bazaar, is that the, the age demographic skews very young, so they expect the death rates to be lower. But I just can't imagine the, the impact that has an already, you know, very extremely fragile health system there. Right. And I mean, there, you know, one positive case has already been detected in Cox's Bazaar. And I think, you know, it is just so critical that um, safety protocols are followed and we are just continuously reiterating um, that message to our to our frontline workers um, to ensure that um, all of us are following safety protocols as well as making sure that communities themselves are aware of how to protect themselves right um, in this uh, in this very vulnerable situation so finally you know the way that most international humanitarian organizations including care you know funds themselves is through donations through contributions from from donors you know large and small how do you expect this current crisis to impact your your you know your funding and your ability to uh kind of do everything that you were doing before the crisis plus more do you expect these your organization or, or others to sort of have uh, budget budget gaps or like how are you how do you expect the funding scenario to play out? So it is very early days, um, and I think we are all sort of in a in a mode of trying to game out what that will look like moving forward without any real clarity. Um, because it's not entirely clear yet what the what the full economic impact is going to be. But I think what is just already incredibly clear to all of us is that um, 
needs are going to increase significantly. The resource requirements are um, going to increase significantly because we have that existing caseload of all of these huge emergencies around the world, right? Syria, Yemen, um, Nigeria, Bangladesh, and the list just goes on. And on top of that, now we have this incredible crisis, um, which we will all be called upon to respond to and to rebuild from. And the resource requirements related to that uh, will be significant and they will be required not just in the immediate term, but in the long term. And so I think we will need to continue to grapple as a community with how we ensure that the right kinds of resources are brought to bear to ensure that we are able to consistently and effectively meet the needs of people who are already so vulnerable and you know, likely to be made much more vulnerable as a result of the pandemic. Uh, well, Susanna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Susanna. That was interesting. And, you know, it's funny, oftentimes, like right before I will do these interviews, I'll post on Twitter. Um, you know, if there's any particular question you want me to ask or your angle you want me to tackle with this interview. And many of you responded that you're eager to learn the ways in which CARE or an international INGO is seeking to mitigate the impacts of this crisis on women and girls in particular. And, and uh, I was glad that we asked and addressed that question head on. Thank you. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Mark L. Goldberg. All right, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.